this is Fill in the Details, the podcast devoted to exploring the way philosophical wisdom and insights fill in the details of my favorite books, films, and works of art, provoking thoughtful discussion and meaning-making in the everyday life routine. In episode one, began looking at Toni Morrison's Beloved, one of the most emotionally charged books I've personally read. What I find really interesting about this book is the fact that its form and structure and language in a lot of ways is meta-level echoing of many of the images being discussed explicitly in the text. For example, last episode we looked at the first few chapters and focused expressly on the images of trees and the reflection of the beauty of the trees and the look of Sweet Home despite the complete disguise of the horrors going on there. While we haven't yet seen explicitly those horrors, the allusions to them are pretty clear in Seed's attitude and diction, and honestly in her silence on certain things. It's in the silence, the lack of language, that we see the horrors hidden behind the beauty. The language is beautiful too, and masks and disguises those horrors. Unlike many texts which move in a linear pattern, and like many of my students commented on the first few chapters, this one is built upon an almost stream-of-consciousness jumble of flashbacks. Unlike people like, say, Steinbeck, who spend chapters at the beginnings of a novel setting up a background in the plot before proceeding, Beloved actually begins well before you have any idea how the present was built. And in a lot of ways, action is completely arrested in the first half. This is... There is, I guess, some forward progress, some momentum, but it is the kind of a one-step-forward, two-steps-back kind of thing. We get glimpses of the reasoning behind the current horror, but it takes a long time and a concerted effort before we really put together any of the causal relationships that make the present what it is. Last week, we also talked about memory, or as Seath calls it, rememory, through the collective conscious sort of memory explored by Paul Ricoeur and its philosophies on memory and forgetting, and the exercise necessary for maintaining a historical distance in order to analyze and assess the ethical responsibility to the past and future through the present, and yet the need to maintain a proper orientation toward all three temporal spheres in regards to memory as it is close to those in the first hand, so as to pass the understanding at second hand. So far, Seath, our main reflective voice, has done not much in this sense. She's been arrested by the memories to some extent. She exists in the present, but that's about it. She doesn't really live anywhere. She doesn't live in the past or the present or even the future. Future plans are not a thing for her, which is why she lives at a distance mentally from her daughter Denver, who seems very concerned with her future, and with the present, and much less so with the past, from which she is generationally disconnected. I would imagine the dynamic is much like that which exists between immigrant parents and their children born in countries other than their native lands. This dynamic is very much the heart of books like those written by people like Amy Tan, where the crux of the work sits in that pocket, that divide between the generations. While Beloved is not solely about that divide, it still very much pervades it. And into that whole falls the languages which are meant to transcend it. Unfortunately, though, the bridge that gets built by words is often shoddily built. Like a rope and a wood bridge tenuously built over a canyon, it's there. But after age and wear and disuse, you really kind of fear to cross it, and if you try, your foot falls through rotted wood and the possibility of annihilation is imminent, causing you to turn back or seek aids for crossing. So now that I've built an incomprehensible metaphor for the faults of language... See what I did there? Ha ha ha. Might as well start exploring some even more abstract philosophies of language, shall we? 
There are so many fantastic philosophies of language, and honestly, I'm going to do a major disservice to them here, uh, because I'm probably only going to mention the names Wittgenstein and Derrida without a whole lot of detail, which might be philosophical sacrilege in this conversation, but for the sake of time and clarity, I'm going to focus on some short passages from the works of three philosophers I really love. Huxley, of course, Dewey also, of course, and Heidegger. Uh, I talked at length about John Dewey in the first episode of Series 1 as well, which is fair. Uh, I've been highly influenced personally in recent years by the educational philosophies of John Dewey through my personal readings of Aldous Huxley, which has manifested in a bunch of overdue library books that still sit on my shelves today. Oops. Uh, I should also start looking into Immanuel Kant. I've looked into some Bertrand Russell just briefly as well. Philosophies of education for my own personal research interests. But the ideas of Huxley and Dewey definitely pervade my classroom experience and probably even unconsciously at this point. Like I said in series one, Dewey's work, How We Think, which was published in 1910, ends with a discussion of language and the stunting effect of then-current educational trends, which he credits with also having a stunting effect on thinking. Fragment language. Fragment thinking. If you've read Orwell's 1984, you've seen the effects of such an idea played out through doublethink. It's double-plus-good novel, for sure. Dewey begins this section of his work by exalting language. As a parent to a four-year-old, I can definitely vouch for a lot of what he says here. My little one, when she first started to talk, used to love to point at stuff and then have us give her the names so that she could recognize what they were. And then when she could repeat the sounds properly and recognizably herself, she would repeat it endlessly. She still loves it, just now it's written words which she's trying to read. And uh, multiple languages. She loves counting to five in English and Spanish and French, even though she's terrible at it because we're terrible at it. She's learning sign language, so a lot of the you know stuff that she talks in English, she's got kind of a corresponding sign. But there's still something super illuminating about words. All of a sudden, something vague is brought into focus for us. It gives us the thing a definite, concrete existence to and for us. Then we can enter that thing into relations with other things, learning more about it and about ourselves. Here I could go into Hegel's dialectic as well, but I'll save that for another day. But unfortunately, there are limits as well. Some of this is inherent to language itself, but also to our use of it. Especially so when we get lazy and flippant. I often tell my students, if you want to become a good reader, the answer is pretty obviously to read good writing. The way to become a good writer is the same read good writing, and to expand your ability to use language, same answer. In a way, it affirms Aristotle's position on virtue as a habit. Want to know what virtuous behavior is like? Find a virtuous person to study, then emulate. Anyway, when we get lazy with language, or maybe in an educative sphere are allowed to get lazy with language from lack of use, uh, overly specific and impractical language that doesn't have anywhere to be used, or just a lack of room to have ideas and express them, we become, as Dewey says, mentally suppressed or worse, smothered. There's a vicious cycle that happens with this also. We become lazy and complacent, describe every pretty plant as a flower, and then pass that on to our children as good enough, and then because we don't develop enough nuance to their language, they also don't develop enough nuance to their thought, and then when they can't fully express themselves, get isolated and lonely in their isolation, then comes formal education, where language is still specific and nuanced, and students are unable to use and develop the language meaningfully. So we make all their reading easy and trivial so that they don't make mistakes. 
Dewey also says that educators end up monopolizing discourse. <laughs> I, I note fully the uh, oddity of this statement right now in the context of where I'm putting it. But if we're monopolizing discourse and then expecting back from our students single phrase answers so that they avoid errors as well, the writing then betrays students the same way, so we scale back the expectations of their writing, and then we say things like, well, we know what they meant, and all of a sudden nobody knows what anybody meant. This is obviously a pretty extreme and defeated view. I honestly don't know if it's gone that far, but you can see some echoes of that in his criticism. A lot of this can be attributed to the disintegrating effect of the content model of education, where language and thinking is compartmentalized by subject matter. As a result, students come to believe that historic knowledge is only applicable to studying history, that mathematical knowledge and skills are only applicable to math classes, and so on. And we wonder why students want to specialize as early as they do now. They're all becoming progressivists. But I don't think it's the correct view. There is something still to be said for an education in all things, but all things have to be connected humanistically to us and for us. Language and thinking must be sufficiently deep to solve the world's issues these days, and specialization isn't the answer for that, especially as the world becomes increasingly more connected. To be an economist today requires ethical understanding, and to be a scientist today needs human persuasion and rhetorical skill. We've seen the effects of dropping scientific knowledge in studies and journals with highly specialized language that's jargon to the general public. As a result, we end up in territory where scientists can say, look, we did the studies already and published them. Why weren't you listening? And we can have the equally true notion of the non-scientific community saying, sure, but you didn't say it in a way to us that we could actually do anything with it. Some level of marketing is necessary, which requires understanding of more than scientific language. It requires the ability to know and understand an audience and translate experience. So I'll get off my soapbox for a minute. Huxley, like Dewey, also sees that verbalized education alone is problematic because students get the conceptual language without the physical companion to those concepts, where the concepts can be applied. Like the child discussed earlier, there's a thing, there's a name. The thing is crystallized by the name, but without a thing to point to, an experience to connect the language to, even in an abstract experience, there's still something to, to it. There's empty words. Though Huxley goes further than to simply implicate education. In fact, he goes on to recognize that there are distinct realms of experience that language are involved in, specifically the outer world and the inner world, where we must survive as an animal and yet think and feel as a human being. In a way, it's like Kant's language, the phenomenal and the noumenal. In his work, Literature and Science, he describes the situation that differentiates the two and the problems of language. For example, the visual, auditory, and olfactory experiences of a group of people watching the burning of a house are likely to be similar. Similar, too, are the intellectual experiences of those members of the group who make the effort to think logically about the causes of this particular fire and, in the light of current knowledge, of combustion in general. In other words, sense impressions and the processes of rational thought are experiences whose privacy is not too extreme to make them unshareable. But now let us consider the emotional experiences of our fire watchers. One member of the group may feel sexual excitement, another aesthetic pleasure, another horror, and yet another human sympathy, or inhuman and malicious glee. Such experiences, it is obvious, are radically unlike one another. In this sense, they are more private than sense experiences and the intellectual experiences of logical thought. The purpose of Huxley's piece here is to propose the need for both an education in the sciences and the humanities concurrently. 
As he claims, science provides language for communicating the public of human experiences, while the concerns of the humanities provide, well, imperfectly, the language for private experiences. He does recognize, though, that there is a limit to the externalized system of symbols that language provides in an attempt to externalize the internal. There is an inferential feeling into, but only provides a crude and sufficiently vivid idea of the internal experience. To give you a picture of this, I'll use the biblical story of the transfiguration of Jesus, which is found in Matthew 17. Here, the disciples Peter, James, and John are on a mountain with Jesus. He goes up a bit and leaves them behind, though they can still see him. There, they see him change, somehow, and he seems to be visited by two figures that they attribute to the long-dead prophets, Moses and Elijah. The language they use to describe the event is wholly inadequate as they don't really have the proper words to give credence to the importance, the awe, and the terror of the moment they're experiencing. As a result, we as readers are called simply to have faith despite a clear picture to put to the scene. And yet it is credited as a pivotal moment for the disciples, and by extension, for us as believers, it's secondhand. And again, we can return to the discussion of memory and forgetting. It was the ethical duty of the believers to provide for us a way of secondhand understanding here, but if the language itself cannot come close to the describing scene in ways that provide us analogous external referent for the internal truth, what then? In another of his works, The Doors of Perception, Huxley describes this. We live together, we act on and react to one another, but always and in all circumstances we are by ourselves. The martyrs go hand in hand into the arena, they are crucified alone. Embrace, the lovers desperately try to fuse their insulated ecstasies into a single self-transcendence, in vain. By its very nature, every embodied spirit is doomed to suffer and enjoy in solitude. Sensations, feelings, insights, fancies, all these are private and except through symbols and at second hand, incommunicable. We can pull information about experiences, but never the experiences themselves. From family to nation, every human group is a society of island universes. Most island universes sufficiently like one another to permit of inferential understanding or even of mutual empathy or feeling into. Thus, remembering our own bereavements and humiliations, we can condole with others in analogous circumstances, can put ourselves, always of course in a slightly Pickwickian sense, in their places. But in certain cases, communication between universes is incomplete or even non-existent. The mind is its own place, and the places inhabited by the insane and the exceptionally gifted are so different from the places where ordinary men and women live that there is little or no common ground of memory to serve as a basis of understanding or fellow feeling. Words are uttered, but fail to enlighten. The things and events to which the symbols refer belong to mutually exclusive realms of experience. He continues in Science and Literature. Thought is crude. Matter, unimaginably subtle. Words are few, and can only be arranged in certain conventionally fixed ways. The counterpoint of unique events is infinitely wide and their succession indefinitely long. My students, for whatever reason, love to illustrate this concept in discussions of, you know, the color red. I don't know why it's always red, but it's always red. Not any other color. But anyway, the conversation generally begins with somebody asking the question, how do I know that what I'm seeing and calling red is the same thing you're seeing and calling red? Or something like that. How do I know my red is your red? And then we start getting into this discussion of the nuance of words and the almost complete sense of faith we have to put into it, an arbitrary way, 
In the same way, some people might argue that we put faith in and ascribe to the ideal of paper money without the physical backing of precious metals to the currency. Although, really, we can question the arbitrary value we place in those, too. Discussions of language as a system itself is difficult and riddled with all the same problems we're attributing to individual words, and the failure of words is specifically captured immediate experience themselves. In 1971, Martin Heidegger wrote a fantastic piece called Poetry Language Thought, in which he had this to say. To reflect on language thus demands that we enter into the speaking of language in order to take up our stay with language, i.e. within its speaking, not within our own. Only in that way do we arrive at the region within which it may or happen or uh, also fail to happen that language will call to us from there and grant us its nature. We leave the speaking to language. We do not wish to ground language in something else that is not language itself, nor do we wish to explain other things by means of language. It has long been known that the characteristics we have advanced do not suffice to circumscribe the nature of language. But when we understand the nature of language in terms of expression, we give it a more comprehensive definition by incorporating expression as one among many activities into the total economy of those achievements by which man makes himself. So we prop up language as a freeing part of our existence, as Heidegger says in concert with the rest, speech enables man to be the living being he is as man, the distinction from plant and animal. Language is self-contained in many ways. In order to talk about language, you have to use language. So here we are again, on the rope between the cliffs of the canyon, trying to describe a concrete reality of our experience from the most tenuous of places. Sometimes words fail. Like Huxley says, there are so many combinations, and no one language has a moratorium on expression. German has words for certain experiences, Spanish certain distinctions of relations that just don't exist in English. Our songs are limited by the words which tend to rhyme with each other, which might be different from other languages. Sometimes we have to borrow from other languages because we don't have something that necessarily fits. So my question is always, if we don't have a word to concretize an inner truth, does it actually exist? So as we sit here in the era of postmodernism where Derrida's deconstruction has really begun to take some of its toll, hey look, I do have somewhere to talk about him here. We're starting to see that some interesting effects of the dismantling of language are happening. There are some positives, of course. Like I said, language is the most freeing thing we have. It's our ability to build a bridge at all, to escape our isolated inner worlds, which are better than shouting in our own box, for sure. But like we've seen, it has limits. And tradition, lack of critical examination, and the numbing effects of a lack of specificity and nuances Dewey describes puts us in a place to be horribly manipulated by its use. See gender norms, which is the subject of much deconstructive dismantling today. Traditionally, feminine denotes a certain set of traits and masculine another, and a failure to fit completely or at least adequately and neatly into one of those labels has had horribly damaging effects. As a result of Derrida's deconstructive philosophies, we're seeing challenges to that kind of limitation of language and concept in a dismantling that is at once freeing, but it's not without its effects. In an abstract sense, and I'll disclaimer here because I can't even begin to talk about this from a real practical place as someone who has had zero personal experience here and is thus really not the person to address it from that stance, here breaking down the structures of a language can go so far as to render the language almost useless. Or at least it can make it even deeply con more confusing. Like most systems of symbols, uh, there's a requisite that enough of us have to ascribe to it. 
if we stop subscribing, the things subscribed to have little power. And while limiting power is good for many instances, we have to acknowledge that the solid grounding and foundation, especially in terms of language as a whole, may be actually detrimental. Without language, we cannot even begin to empathize. There will be no reaching of inner worlds into outer world, no analogous experience to work from. It'll be island universes, like Huxley describes. So there's a fine line. Even where destruction of language games that are power in play and disguises are a net good. So here we land back in Beloved. Now first I have to preface this too. I am a white woman, so I have already kind of a feeling of inadequate about trying to teach this book. Uh, obviously I haven't experienced racism, or if, even if I've experienced some kind of subtle, not-so-outright forms of sexism, it still doesn't quite compare. I've been pretty lucky, and I'll acknowledge that. Me talking about this book is very much like standing on one side of a gulch where Toni Morrison's trying to beckon me across the obviously shoddy rope and rotted wood bridge. In fact, it might actually even be worse than that. Uh, it's like being told to shut your eyes and start walking and don't look down or you'll fall like Wile E. Coyote does in the old Looney Tune cartoons. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, please go watch some cartoons. These are classics and this is part of our refined culture. In reality, this deep chasm of our experience is exactly why I make the choice of teaching it to my students each year. It's one of those books that commands attention, but you can't really say anything to it. You can't even really begin to understand it. Like all these language philosophies show, language just simply can't paint a picture relevant for us to be able to put ourselves in any way in the perspective of this character. But it's absolutely worth trying, despite the inherent failure. We must confront and be confronted by these narratives, even if we can't really make anything of them. I tell my students at the beginning of it every year not to expect to understand anything and not to really try. It's not trying to make you understand. It's just forcing you to confront the reality of experience that is not yours and to see it. In seeing it, in pointing at it and giving it a name, even if that name does little else, is to give it concreteness to, to solidify it as an experience at all. That's why the overused and inadequate and even infuriating phrase, giving voice to the voiceless, is still so relevant. Without words, even inadequate words, for something, that something is not there. It's not to be confronted or recognized. Steve gives reality, object permanence, if you will, to the slave experience, and a particularly brutal one at that. And it forces us to grapple with our own humanity and often our own suppressions and suppressing, which Lingwood has the power to do, even unconsciously, unwittingly, and unintentionally. It's actually super appropriate when taken in this view for Toni Morrison to include the kind of magical realism of the supernatural elements in this one. Fiction really has this cool power that's inherent in the suspension of disbelief. J.R.R. Tolkien, probably one of the most important writers and advocates for fantasy, gives justification to fantasy writing and the use of fantastical elements in an essay he wrote called On Fairy Stories. While he had personal reasons, obviously, for defending so strongly the genre of fantasy writing, Tolkien provides a good way for us to understand the need for and the importance of fiction as a whole. Here I'd like to bring specific attention to the concept of arresting strangeness. Fantasy elements clearly don't align with our mundane reality. As a result, when they become embedded in good writing, and I won't really talk about bad writing here because that really requires a whole different conversation that we don't need to get into right now. Let's just assume, that, assume here that I'm including Beloved in the category of good writing because, well, it is. And when they become embedded in good writing, 
uh, fictional uh, fantasy elements, they provide the author a vehicle for expression in a way that kind of lowers the defenses of the reader, and it forces them to confront reality in a way that's almost broadsided. While a reader could simply just see the inclusion of the ghost baby in this one and the creepy woman that they'll call Beloved by the beginning of Chapter 5 as a fantastical nonsense that sullies the gravity of the real situation of the book, true and open-minded consideration allows for this fantastical vehicle to enrich the givens. And like I said in the first episode, you can take these magical inclusions as manifestations of psychosis for the characters as well. That's fine. You can still get the importance behind the inclusion here. Though I think you lose something of the beauty in doing that. Just let the magic be magic. I mean, go to Disneyland for crying out loud and be happy. Oh, I miss Disneyland. We could really use a little magic right now, I think. I mean, Tolkien does credit this to some degree with escapism. The desire to get out of our situations, even if that's only for a few minutes while we're sitting in our chairs being otherwise bored. But here, I don't think the magic is good magic in that escape. We're escaping without it, and the magic is the one that forces confrontation with the form which Seethe is escaping. So maybe this isn't that kind of thing at all. In Chapter 5, Seethe, Paul D, and Denver return to 124 to find a well-dressed, oddly clear-skinned, but soaking wet young woman sitting on the property. It's almost immediate that Seethe somehow internally recognizes this woman is somehow connected to her dead child. At this point, this is something we don't really know much about yet, other than she's said pretty much that the baby was about two years old at the time she was escaping from Sweet Home, but whose name we've only attributed Beloved because it was the only word that Seath could afford to put on her headstone. Denver, like Seath, becomes obsessive and protective and possessive of this new young woman, and it's through this that Seath comes to really see Denver's loneliness. But this girl, who we'll just be calling Beloved from now on, is weird, to say the least. She voraciously sucks down water, which tends to have some symbolic connection to her and to life, vitality, fertility, sexually connected to, like, the uh, if you think of the Hyacinth Girl in T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland. She also seems to be obsessed with sugar. But they can't really seem to get much information out of her, uh, as it says... There didn't seem to be a place for her to go. She didn't mention one or have much of an idea what she was doing in that part of the country or where she had been. They believed the fever had caused her memory to fail just as it has kept her slow moving. But then she's often described as teeming and lively, good skin, bright eyes, and strong as a bull. Paul D., unlike the other two, is immediately distrustful. And this causes rifts in all the relationships, and we see a return to the secretive nature of things that's inherent in this text. In a lot of ways, there's a valley that exists between what is said and what isn't said, where the important, true communication lies, where the words fail to give adequate expression to inner world as it meets outer world, and again, the bridge tenuously strung. Everything is held tenuously in this book, as if by threads of a spider's web. Yeah, I recognize that spider webs are remarkably strong for what they are. And to a spider, exceedingly so. But I've walked through a fair share. They seem to find me on my nightly walks, even if I'm walking behind my husband. I'm the one that somehow always, somehow always is the one walking through them. It's weird. But an example of this tenuousness is given in Seed's memory of her mother, which comes to her somewhat randomly and plays to that healthy distancing that was alluded to in the previous episode. The idea of loving enough for utility but at a distance is key. 
She begins chapter six with some pleasant memories of her wedding, the earrings that were given to her, which have since disappeared, which then leads to an odd episode of memory of her mother. I didn't see her but a few times out in the fields and once when she was working indigo. By the time I woke up in the morning, she was in line. If the moon was bright, they worked by its light. Sunday, she slept like a stick. She must have nursed me two or three weeks. That's the way the others did. Then she went back in rice and I sucked from another woman whose job it was. She never fixed my hair nor nothing. She didn't even sleep in the same cabin most nights, I remember. Too far from the lineup, I guess. One thing she did do. She picked me up and carried me behind the smokehouse. Back there, she opened up her dress front and lifted her breast and pointed under it. Right on her rib was a circle and a cross burnt right in the skin. She said, This is your ma'am. This. And she pointed. I am the only one got this mark now. The rest dead. If something happens to me and you can't tell me by my face, you can know me by this mark. Scared me so. All I could think of was how important this was and how I needed to have something important to say back, but I couldn't think of anything, so I just said what I thought. The inhumanity of being branded. And the need to tell your own kid you can be identified when dead. Definitely makes the comment of the grandmother's in Flannery O'Connor's short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, when she says she's got to make sure she's got nice underwear on in case they have a car accident and they have to identify her body. All the more silly, absurd, and disgusting. And yet the necessity after her mother is killed. It's just unfathomable. Paul D. gives an equally unfathomable memory of his in the next chapter that continues the inhumane. In a half-conversation full of holes and incomplete communication and a widening chasm of not said, Steve lets her resentment for the lack of her husband boil over, a clear defense against the fear of his unknown circumstances. Paul D. suggests that Seed's husband, Hal, may not actually be dead, but may be insane as so many of them have become after being broken by the treatment of the school teacher, uh, including another one named Sixo, who is almost always described in the book as crazy. So he shares his own intimate story here, probably one of the most straightforward memories so far. Maybe. Maybe you can hear it. I just ain't sure I can say it. What a great line to preface this whole situation of the failures of language right here. Say it right, I mean. Because it isn't the bit, that wasn't it. He recounts a time when his punishment was sitting in a shed with a horse bit in his mouth. Now, we've seen people in movies and stuff with a handkerchief tied around their mouth and the horrifying look of terror in their eyes with the accompaniment of being gagged and threatened with physical harm or death. But then you add the metallic taste of the bit, the length of time this is happening, the inability to swallow your own spit when your mouth gets dry or you try to relieve it, the spit you do produce is running in drool down your face and torso, the jaw pain of having it sit like that, I mean, we've all been to the dentist. We know how much of an annoyance it is to hold your mouth open like that, even just for a small, inconvenient amount of time. Now, compound that here. The inability to properly breathe, the animalistic feel and look and taming, the inability to do anything about it, what makes us human, to speak coherently. Then he sees this rooster from the farm. Mister, he looked so free, better than me, stronger, tougher. Son of a bitch couldn't even get out of his shell itself, but he was still king, and I was. Mister was allowed to be and stay what he was, but I wasn't allowed to be and stay what I was. Even if you cooked him, you'd have cooked, been cooking a rooster named Mister. 
but wasn't no way I'd ever be Paul D. again, living or dead. School teacher changed me. I was something else, and that something was less than a chicken sitting in the sun on a tub. We come back to the issue of freedom yet again. The way both Seath and Paul D. respond to their past suggests the slavery in the physical sense has had lasting effects in the mental sense as well. But that some of this is self-perpetuated now. At one point, can, and I won't ask should here, I don't think it's appropriate for me to make that kind of judgment, what point can a victim begin to shed their victimhood and begin to assume responsibility for and over their own suffering? I have no answer to this. But it'll be worth raising as we continue to build the bridge across the gulf of truth in this one. Would it be too much to say that maybe giving life through language to these memories could provide some healing, some freedom from the inwardness, the self-isolation of the memories? We get utterances here of the painful, horrific truth that belies their existences. It speaks to the unspoken. But there are still so many things unsaid, and the serious implications of the idea that some things necessarily remain that way because the words either invoke feelings that are too painful to be reminded of, or the words don't convey or worse detract from the original experience. As chapter 7 aptly ends, nothing better than to start the day than serious work of beating back the past. We've seen this phrase before, the famous phrase that ends the narrative of the Great Gatsby, and so we beat on, boats against the current borne back ceaselessly into the past. And while I hate Nick and everything he stands for in the book, there's something in of it relevant here. And it is probably even more poignant, so for Seath and Beloved. In Nick's phrase, the past does the beating. In Seath's, it is purposefully herself. In both, the recognition of the past and its effects on present and future are the arresting feature. For Gatsby, who doesn't want to leave the past, the present is non-existent. He doesn't live in the present. He cannot make the future the past. That makes no temporal sense. It can never be. For Seath, it is somewhat opposite. She fails to recognize the effects of the past on the present and future, and as a result of not dealing with it at all, she is enslaved by it. Both then are enslaved by the past, but in different ways and for different and incomparable reasons. Is it then simply an improper orientation toward the past that unites their very, very different narratives? If so, what is the proper orientation towards the past? Is it possible for either... Can it be the same answer for both despite the apples-to-oranges circumstances? Am I unreasonable for wanting it to be simple answer? Yeah, probably. We'll have to continue with this theme going forward as we look at the way time is the slave driver of our freedom. This might be honestly all that unites our experiences both of inner and outer worlds with this particular narrative. I sure cannot identify with only knowing my mother as a commodity or having a bit in my mouth like an animal or giving birth on a boat as I'm running for my life. I'll never know what it's like to be considered less than a person. And yet these situations do not go away. Sex trafficking is a massive issue in our world. People are fleeing everywhere to everywhere. Genocides are still occurring. Today's Denim Day. People are still being slaughtered and organs sold off. I'm fortunate to be where I am, and I'm not trying to minimize people's real struggles that aren't these. I'm just trying to recognize the fact that if treating, treatment of one human requires analogous circumstances that can be accurately described by language, well then we're destined to a history of war and seeing the other as monsters. 
there's a significant reason why old World War I propaganda posters portrayed the Germans as nasty, scary, King Kong-like apes. Dehumanizing the enemy makes hatred easy. There's a great Black Mirror episode on, uh, for this on Netflix, where soldiers have vision-altering technology that makes them see minority groups as these creepy insect-like aliens. It's much easier to kill. Much harder to build empathy. So I have to contend that Nalika's circumstances are not alone enough for us to build empathy. We need more than that. We'll continue to get a sense for what that more is as we contend with a narrative so unlike our own in language that really doesn't do it any justice. So until next time, linked in the episode information, you'll still find lots of resources that have been discussed here today. If you liked what you heard and you want to hear more of this kind of thing, subscribe on Spotify or any of the other platforms that this is running through. Uh, check back next week for the next installment of the series. We'll ironically continue to try to use language to get at some of the meaning in this one, even if the meaning is just, wow, that happened. I'm Stacy Cabrera, and this is Fill in the Details.